Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, March 29th. I'm Carolina Rosario. These are today's headlines. The trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is underway today, 10 months after George Floyd's death sparked a nationwide reckoning over race. COVID-19 cases are rising in nearly half of the U.S. states, prompting new concerns about a fourth surge. This as the U.S. reported a record number of vaccinations on Sunday. And the giant container ship that blocked the Suez Canal was finally set free after nearly a week of being stuck sideways on one of the world's most crucial trade routes. These and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. The former Minneapolis police officer charged with the killing of George Floyd went on trial Monday, with prosecutors showing the jury video of Derek Chauvin pressing his knee on the black man's neck for several minutes as people yelled at him repeatedly to get off and Floyd gasped that he couldn't breathe. In opening statements, prosecutor Jerry Blackwell told the jury that the number to remember was 9 minutes, 29 seconds. That's the amount of time Chauvin had Floyd pinned to the pavement with his knee last May. Let's listen to this. He checks Mr. Floyd for a pulse. He has to check him for a pulse, you'll see, with Mr. Chauvin continuing to remain on his body at the same time. Doesn't get up even when the paramedic comes to check for a pulse and doesn't find one. Mr. Chauvin doesn't get up. You will see that the paramedics have taken the gurney out of the ambulance, have rolled it over next to the body of Mr. Floyd, and you'll be able to see Mr. Chauvin still does not let up, doesn't get up. You're going to learn that when Mr. Floyd was unconscious, uh, that when he was breathless, when he did not have a pulse, that there was a duty to have administered care, to let up and get up. Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, used his opening statement to tell jurors that medical testimony and use of force experts will show a different view. You will learn about crowd control, medical intervention, de-escalation, procedural justice, crisis intervention, and the human factors of force. That is, what happens to a police officer or any person when they are involved in a high-stress use-of-force situation. And you will learn that Derek Chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over the course of his 19-year career. The use of force is not attractive, but it is a necessary component of policing. The prosecution played the footage for the jury during opening statements, underscoring the central role that video will play in the case. So Eileen Cardet has the details on the case. Let's see. This afternoon, a city and a nation still reeling. Our community has endured a great deal of trauma and pain and stress and frustration and anger. Last Memorial Day, video from bystanders captured then Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who's white, kneeling on George Floyd's neck as the black man lay on the street face down for more than nine minutes and 20 seconds, according to court documents. On the eve of the trial, a rally for George Floyd, hosted by Reverend Alb Sharpton. But let us be clear that it is not just Chauvin on trial. 
the United States' ability to deal with police accountabilities on trial. Floyd's death sparking one of the largest social justice movements in the U.S. history. And now, 10 months later, the former police officer will stand trial. Chauvin is facing manslaughter, second and third degree murder charges. He's pleaded not guilty to all of them. This morning, the jury has been listening to the opening statements. On both sides, the focus will be on causation, whether or not it's Derek Chauvin that caused the death of George Floyd. COVID-19 restrictions making this trial look like no other. Plexiglass partitions, jurors sitting six feet apart. Eight of the jurors self-identify as white and six as people of color. One member of Floyd's family will be in court each day. The family's attorney telling us he's prepared his clients for a difficult experience. They're going to see that video over and over again. They're also going to hear them assassinate the character of George Floyd. Aileen Cardet, Yunus. The director of the CDC given today an emotional warning of impeding doom regarding the coronavirus pandemic. This as cases start to rise again across the nation despite vaccination efforts. Lorraine Cáceres has the latest on the pandemic here in the U.S. It's potentially the beginning of the dreaded and predicted fourth surge, cases rising in nearly half the country. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are and so much reason for hope, but right now I'm scared. The U.S. averaging nearly 62,000 cases a day, up from 54,000 two weeks ago. This is basically what we were all saying was going to happen around the second half of March. The rise in cases likely caused by the continued spread of the U.K. variants, known to be more contagious, combined with other crucial factors. What we're likely seeing is because of things like spring break and pulling back on the mitigation methods that you've seen now, several states have done that. The TSA reporting a new travel record since the start of the pandemic, screening more than 1.57 million people at U.S. airports on Sunday. The number surpassing the previous record set only a week before. Right now, Florida has reported the most cases of the U.K. variant. But with a more dense population, New York and New Jersey are reporting the country's highest rate of infection. But if we could just get two or three more weeks of around three million vaccines a day, that's going to be a pretty big backstop against a true fourth surge. So far, more than 143 million people have been vaccinated in the U.S., about 51 million already fully inoculated. In Texas, all adults can get a shot beginning today, and in Florida, anyone 40 and older is now eligible. In Hawaii, state officials believe the islands of Lanai, part of Maui County, will be the first place in the country to reach herd immunity. They started mass vaccinations there a month ago, and now 65% of the population has already received at least one shot. The fact that we could, you know, allocate so few doses to this population and protect it, insulate it from this virus is fabulous. Meanwhile, as the country moves forward, Dr. Deborah Burks, former coordinator for the White House's coronavirus response team under President Trump, taking a look back, talking to CNN about how difficult it was to do her job, one time even getting an uncomfortable phone call from the president for publicly warning Americans living in rural areas that the virus was a threat for them too. 
Atlanta CDC director is pleading with state officials to uh, reconsider the rollback of restrictive measures. Right now, hospitalizations remain low, but the death toll is quickly approaching 550,000. Back to you, Carolina. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. And a new study involving thousands of U.S. college students will help test whether vaccinated people can spread the coronavirus. Malena Marchand has the details. As COVID vaccinations continue nationwide, some people who have received their first dose, like Andres Rivera, still have burning questions. I wonder if after getting vaccinated, we're also going to be carriers. A study funded and conducted by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases is trying to determine whether vaccinated people can be infected without symptoms and also if they can transmit COVID-19. We already know that vaccines protect us from severe disease, but we do not know how much it protects us from transmitting the virus to other people. The study includes 12,000 university students between 18 and 26 years old. 6,000 of them will receive the vaccine immediately. The other 6,000 will receive it four months later. Both groups will get the Moderna vaccine. Those students are going to be vaccinated and they will frequently get tested for the virus through their noses to quantify how much virus is in their nose. The study will test another 25,000 people classified as close contact of students. This way, we will be able to assess the risk of transmission in terms of whether there is transmission from people who are vaccinated. So the more people we include, the better. Then we will be able to answer those questions that we do not have specific answers for yet. The results of the study are expected to be available in five months. Reported by Viviana Avila in Chicago, Malena Marchan, U News. Thanks, Malena. And a joint study by the World Health Organization in China on the origins of COVID-19 says that transmission of the virus from bats to humans through another animal is the most likely scenario and that a lab leak is extremely unlikely. The findings offer little new insight into how the virus first emerged and leave many questions unanswered. The report is expected to be made public Tuesday. The Biden administration is working on a system for people to prove they have been vaccinated against coronavirus. The so-called Vax Pass or Vaccine Passport could be used by individuals in the workplace, in school or traveling internationally. According to a senior White House official, multiple agencies are involved in the planning. Potentially, potentially, the vaccine credentials could play a role in multiple aspects of daily life. The travel industry in particular has been calling on the federal government to develop a kind of universal VAX pass system. The demand for the pass is expected to become more urgent as more Americans get vaccinated every day. About 143 million COVID-19 vaccine doses have been administered in the U.S. According to the CDC, as of Sunday, that's about 3.3 million more doses given since yesterday. With the increase, the seven-day rolling average is around 2.7 million shots in arms given every day. With the latest data, a total of 94 million people, or just over 28% of the population, have received at least one dose of the vaccine. 15% of the total population, or 52 million people, have now been fully vaccinated.
and less than three weeks after signing a historic one, $0.9 trillion COVID-19 relief law, President Biden is set to unveil the second big legislative push of his administration. But this proposal may be a little more difficult to pass because it includes tax increases. Edwin Pitti has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin. That's right, Carolina. President Biden is pushing for what will be his biggest legislation yet, the Building Back Better Economy Plan. We are talking about a $3 trillion infrastructure plan. However, Biden will divide it to upgrade the nation's infrastructure in two separate pieces that he will unveil weeks apart. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki announced over the weekend that the first part of the plan will focus on repairing roads and railways and also building more ports, bridges, schools and airports to create more jobs because according to the current administration, the U.S. should not be 13th in the world when it comes to infrastructure. The plan also calls for hundreds of billions in tax credits, something Republicans in D.C. are not happy about, and also because of the price tag of the bill, claiming Democrats will raise too many taxes. But the White House is saying the tax increase will target corporations and the wealthy, not Americans who make less than $400,000 a year. But Republicans also do not agree with most of the second part of the bill, and that is when the controversy could start in Capitol Hill. The second part of the bill that will be announced in April includes child care and health care reforms. The main goal, of course, is to accomplish free community college and universal access to pre-K, and that at the same time address a lot of the issues that American people are struggling with right now. Biden and Carolina says the Build Back Better plan will create millions of jobs while giving America's working families the tools, choices, and freedom needed to boost the U.S. economy. We are reporting live in Washington, D.C. Back to you, Carolina. It's an interesting project. Thank you, Edwin. Reporting from Washington, D.C. And joining us now to take a closer look at President Biden's expected infrastructure rollout is Chris Liu. He is a senior fellow of the University of Virginia's Miller Center and a former Obama cabinet member. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Chris, so the Biden infrastructure plan is expected to have a high price tag. If the idea is to go big... What do you expect and want to see in a new spending bill? I think the infrastructure bill will contain a lot of the traditional items, roads, bridges, airports, transit, schools, wastewater projects as well. But it's important to understand that President Biden has also talked about using infrastructure as a way to address climate issues. So I think you're going to see a push to install electric vehicle charging stations, to make homes more energy efficient, to modernize the electrical grid, to invest in wind and solar projects. And so I think that's kind of the physical component of the infrastructure bill. But then there will be another component that looks at human infrastructure, childcare, uh, paid family leave, uh, universal pre-K uh, for school, as well as community colleges. Uh, I think the first part will obviously be a little bit easier to do than the second part, but both of these are part of the broader uh, framing of build back better. Let's not just get to the economy we had before the pandemic, but let's really try to address some of the systemic problems we have in our country. And definitely those are key issues that have to be addressed. But now the country is facing serious challenges on several fronts. For example, the administration is still trying to manage the pandemic and they're trying to turn the page on immigration. Why is this the right time to move forward on something like infrastructure and those things that you mentioned? 
Traditionally, there has been bipartisan support for infrastructure. You'll recall that even the Trump administration tried to do this uh, several times. And so I think there is both the recognition that there's bipartisan support, as well as a real need in our country right now. The American Society of Civil Engineers does an annual report card of the country's infrastructure, and they gave the U.S. a C minus grade, and that's terrible. And so this is not just about making our transportation systems, our infrastructures uh, more um, uh, reliable um, to meet a 21st century economy. It's about creating jobs. It's about helping U.S. manufacturing and, frankly, about making us more competitive towards China. That's not to say the other issues you've raised are not important, but the thought is that there could be more bipartisan support around infrastructure. Just talk about bipartisan support. Improved infrastructure, in theory, sounds like something everyone can rally around. But how do you expect congressional Republicans will react to a significant infrastructure push from the administration? Again, you know, traditionally there's been bipartisan support. The challenge that has always come up is how do you pay for infrastructure? And what the Biden administration appears to be proposing uh, is a rollback of some of the tax cuts uh, in the 2017 Trump tax bill. Those were tax cuts for the wealthy people over 400,000. Uh, earning over $400,000 a year, as well as the corporate tax cut. And this is something that Joe Biden ran on. It's what he was elected on. So I think that will be the challenge. Everyone likes roads and bridges and improving them. It gets much harder to figure out how you start to pay for these things. And let's see how, how the, the president and, and Democrats in Congress can convince the Republican side on this plan. So thank you, Chris Liu, for all that information. We'll follow, we will be following up on this important issue. Thank you. Thank you. A spokeswoman for Kamala Harris is clarifying the vice president's role in steaming the surge of migration. It is the first major issue Biden has assigned directly to the vice president. Her spokesperson told reporters Friday that Harris is, quote, not doing the border, saying instead she has been tasked only with diplomatic efforts to take on the root causes of the surge. President Biden announced Wednesday he has tasked Harris with overseeing efforts with Central American countries to steam the flow of migrants to the U.S. southern border. It will be likely a challenging task given it has plagued a president of both parties for decades. And as the Biden administration continues to address the number of migrants arriving at the southern border, the town of Roma in South Texas has become an epicenter of activity. Every night, human smuggling gangs run by powerful cartels in Mexico send hundreds of people across the river. Jorge Hernandez has the story. This small, sleepy town of 10,000 people in South Texas has now become an epic center for migrant crossings. Just across the border is Miguel Aleman, Tamaulipas, one of the cities controlled by Mexico's Gulf Cartel and Northeast Cartel, criminal organizations that have monopolized human trafficking in the region. When the sun begins to set, the peace and quiet in Roma ends. Dozens of rafts begin to cross the river from the Mexican side of the border, crowded with people, some with babies in their arms, and unaccompanied minors, all in search of the American dream. Children who are not accompanied by their parents or families with babies. 
Desperate and frightened, they all get out of the rafts while the coyotes give them directions. They come with their families, they come with everyone, father, sons, mother and daughters, with their babies in their arms. We see that safety is important, they're bringing vest. Yes, they go first, then us. On average, we were told that between 150 and 200 people cross every night. We found this young woman who came from Honduras by herself. The journey took her two weeks as she was nine months pregnant. She got off the raft in pain. Well, I'm just going in pain and I hope to have your support. This group decided to say a prayer to thank God after they set foot on U.S. soil. Soon after, they walked for almost a mile until they turned themselves into the border patrol. It's a scene that has repeated itself over and over again here for weeks. Reported by Francisco Cobos in Roma, Texas, this is Jorge Hernandez, U News. Tough stories. Meanwhile, Mexican and Guatemalan authorities are stepping up their border enforcement. This time, they're warning boat operators that it is against the law to transport migrants across the river. Gianni Aponte has a story. To avoid the new migration controls in Mexico, Central Americans are once again opting for the most hidden routes, walking on roads with little traffic and hiding in the bush to avoid detection at migration checkpoints, which operate day and night. William Orellano is Honduran, and for three days since he entered the bush in Tabasco, it has been a trying ordeal. Drinking water from small wells you find where the cows are. There are days that we eat and there are days that we endure and we continue. Meanwhile, in Villahermosa, the capital of Tabasco, in an unusual show of force, the National Migration Commissioner led a parade of agents now tasked with detaining migrants. There, the commissioner announced a measure never before seen in the country, using naval operations to stop migrants. The Navy is going to make an effort. It is going to carry out surveillance on the river because first it takes them up to four or five hours to get to the river. Mexican immigration authorities have detected that migrants now use motorboats to enter Mexico, mainly using the Grijalva and Usumacinta rivers in Chiapas. And boat drivers at Mexico's southern border, such as Everardo Sanchez, told us that they have already received a very clear message from the Navy. At no time am I going to load migrants on my boat because it is prohibited by law. But those wanting to reach the U.S. border also travel by air. On our return flight from Chiapas to the Mexican capital, we detected a group of Guatemalans who pretended that they weren't traveling together, but knew each other. Hours later, they would be traveling to Tijuana, praying that the tight immigration surveillance that now also exists at Mexican airports would not detect them. Reported by Jessica Zermeño, this is Gianni Aponte for U News. Thank you for the report. And privacy rights advocates are concerned over whether Google is sharing user data with immigration and custom enforcement. Luis Mejid has the details from San Francisco. Every time you browse online, you leave behind a wealth of personal information, data that the tech giants are more than happy to collect. But what happens if ICE or any other governmental agency wants to have it? Many users are concerned about their privacy, and they are right. Every year, tech companies receive tens of thousands of requests, often without any court order. And the government usually gets what it's asking for. 
companies, privacy rights advocates say communities should pressure to protect their data. Google told us that we vigorously protect the privacy of our users while supporting the important work of law enforcement. We have a well-established process for managing requests. ICE told us they don't have a practice of asking users information from tech companies, but critics claim there's a lot of evidence that they do. In San Francisco, Luis Mejid, U News. And over the weekend, thousands of people took to the streets in several U.S. cities in response to what many say has become a troubling surge of anti-Asian sentiment. In California, hundreds joined a caravan demanding action to stop the aggression. Grecia Lastra has a story. Making noise in hopes to make a difference. We can't just be angry, right? We have to step out and say, no, we're not going to tolerate this. That's where I am. Teresa Sale fed up with hate crimes and violence spurred by racism. For Sale, it gets personal and hits too close to home. As a mother of black children, I understand what it means to feel endangered every time my children walk out the door. And so it makes me feel angry, but it makes me feel like we have to do something. A caravan of protesters rolled through Sacramento, sending their message loud and clear. With signs like hate is a virus, and unite now against racist violence. I couldn't just sit home because it's, you know, I have friends and seeing other communities being subjected to this abuse is just not right to ignore it. Carrie Shaw proud to hold up her sign, Stop Asian Hate. Adopted from South Korea and raised by a white family, inclusion is her foundation and sits at the core of a protest where people of all backgrounds stepped up to show their support. My background is Hispanic and part Asian as well, so I'm supporting for those reasons, but at the same time, I'm also here just because I feel like this stuff needs to be brought more to the forefront. I'm just so glad that Asians actually are finally getting a voice after all these years and decades and decades of being assaulted and harassed and being silenced about it. This is Grecia Lastra reporting for U News. And in Cleveland, Ohio, numerous local groups participated in a Stop Asian Hate rally Sunday afternoon. Those at the march say they were honoring the victims who suffered anti-Asian attacks. Officials say there has been a resurgence in Asian-based racism, especially since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, Those are the enough? words. On the moment, this councilman became a viral sensation after ripping his shirt off a boat of trustees meeting last week. Frustrated by the rising tide of anti-Asian sentiment, Lee Won wanted to show everyone his scars from his military service. The retired army veteran says he had had enough and wanted to show people what a patriot looks like. At that time, I think everybody was shocked. Even I didn't know I was going to do that, take my shirt off. I was just uh, in the heat of the moment. I, uh, I, I ripped my shirt off, lift, show my scar. I thought, I need to show them what, what uh, Americans look like. That takes all kinds of people, all shapes and sizes. The Westchester councilman came to America when he was 80 years old. Wong is currently president of the Westchester Township Board of Trustees. More of U News after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. You news covers the news of your world. It makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You news on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. The massive container ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal has been set free and it's on the move. Last Tuesday, the giant container ship called the Ever Given got stuck sideways in the crucial waterway, creating a massive traffic jam. The disruption has held up $9 billion each day in global trade and strained supply chains already burdened by the coronavirus pandemic. U.S. President Joe Biden said the situation in Myanmar was absolutely outrageous. After, after security forces opened fire at a funeral, funeral on Sunday, the country had gathered to mourn 114 people killed the previous day in the worst crackdown on protests since the military coup on February 1st. The death toll from has now climbed to at least 459, according to human rights groups. And listen to this. Mexico's death toll from COVID-19 is 60% higher than the number officially reported. This according to a report released by the government on Sunday. The report says the death toll stands about 321,000 rather than the 201,000 deaths reported as of Saturday. Mexico's death toll would be higher than Brazil's and would place the country as second following the United States. Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaidó has tested positive for COVID-19 on Saturday. That's according to an announcement he made on his official Twitter profile. Guaidó said that he was feeling some discomfort and described his symptoms as mild. The opposition leader said that he's currently self-isolating. Now to Colombia, where correction officers discovered a very unusual way of bringing cell phones into a prison. Our Jonathan Mejia has the details. The unusual event happened in a maximum security prison in Combita, in the Colombian department of Boyacá. After the guards detected an unidentified flying object hovering around the prison, they decided to check it out and got a huge surprise. We were going through the workshop area and a pigeon was carrying a cell phone and headphones. The bird, which made it through the ordeal alive, was intercepted just before flying over the wall, carrying, as shown in the photos and videos, a kind of backpack painted in the color of its plumage to camouflage what is believed to be a contraband. Bird expert says that these pigeons can support that weight or more. A carrier pigeon can carry in its legs or in a bag here next to the wings more than two ounces. But this must not be the first or the only bird running these kinds of errands, because the bird's memory is only capable of remembering how to return to its starting point. So it is most likely that there is a pigeon loft inside the prison. Reported by Yassi Paquero in Bogotá, Colombia, Jonathan Mejia, U News.
Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.